0: beyond excited to announce that I have partnered up with Magimix for this season of Crazy Sexy Food. As the inventor of the food processor, Magimix is a family-owned business that has an amazing reputation as makers of quality kitchen appliances and are cherished and adored all around the world by both chefs and home cooks alike. I remember growing up and always seeing my mum's beloved Magimix on her countertop and the utter ease of how she used it. Fast forward to today and my beautiful Magimix cook expert is literally the most used appliance in my kitchen. This latest innovation is both a food processor and multi cooker in one machine. It's a game changer for me and it's such a dream to use. I think of it as my personal sous chef. I give it all the hard work to get on with so I can focus on more interesting jobs like tasting, flavouring and serving up delicious meals. And don't even get me started on their ice cream machine, the gelato expert. It makes ice cream to rival even the best Italian delicacies. Oh, and if that isn't enough, come September they're launching a new range of blenders. Fancy getting your hands on one of their products? Then use my code CSFMAGIMIX for a 15% discount at magimix.co.uk. Follow Magimix UK on social, download their brilliant app for hundreds of delicious recipe ideas and see how the amazing Magimix can become your personal sous chef in your kitchen too. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm your host Hannah Harley-Young. This podcast is all about the love of food and how it plays a part in our lives. I sit down with well-known personalities, food experts, chefs and people who just love their food to find out all about their life, career and their favourite tastes along the way. Today is a really special one for me. I'm joined by the inspirational Asma Khan. Asma gained prominence and became somewhat of a household name when she was featured on the sixth series of Chef's Table, the insightful and cinematically filmed show on Netflix. But Asma's story begins much earlier than that. As an Indian-born British chef, Asma is at the forefront of pushing the taste and flavours of her beautiful cuisine to a wider audience, and most importantly, shining a light on women in the food space. She keeps an all-female kitchen, employing women who aren't necessarily formally trained, but are brilliant cooks who can make delicious food from her home country. A real essence of home cooking, some may say. Asma has overcome many obstacles to get to where she is today. And as a female myself breaking into this culinary world, I look up to her as a real leader within the community. Asma, it's such an honor. Welcome to Crazy Sexy Food. Thank you. And that's such a lovely introduction. Thank you very much. Well, I only speak the truth, Asma. And I know that I've already done the whole fangirl thing last year when I finally got to meet you at Taste of London. But honestly, I really do think there needs to be more people like you in this industry who are really fighting for what matters. Because if there's more of us out there, then the change will happen. Absolutely. And the thing is that, you know,
1: we have to be allies. And not just, you know, women together, but also empathetic men. I think this is how we will win. We will win when we understand that, you know, it is ridiculous to have a prejudice against a gender, color of skin, accent, you know, and it is, it holds us all back. We all lose, not just the person you're discriminating against. We all lose because we lose the magic of actually tasting something that is new by meeting someone who has a different story And the world
0: would be so boring if all of us were similar. Absolutely. I mean, perfectly put. I mean, listen, we're sort of going through a weird time at the moment, and I'm not going to dwell on all the madness that is going on in the country. But, you know, we've come out of a very crazy time, especially for the hospitality industry. And so I guess my first question really is, is how is life treating you? How are you? I know there's a lot going on with you personally. <laughs> yes,
1: but this is this is temporary. You know, we we will we will find we are we re, re- relocating our restaurant, uh, which is traumatic, but it's temporary. We will find another place. I think for all of us, it has been in hospitality an interesting time. I actually feel women have come out of this worse because I hear so many stories and I meet so many women who were not furloughed when the furlough scheme came in. Moms who had children have not been offered their jobs back. And people have come back with that mindset that this is going to be a battle. We need to be tough. And this is a problem because what I'm hearing about is the classic thing of self-selection. Everyone thinks they're in Mortal combat. They're going in and they're picking a football team kind of thing, where they're self-selecting resilient, tough people. And somehow their prejudice is so deep and it's unconscious bias. In some places, there's some, it's pure predators. They don't pick women. They don't pick women to be in powerful positions. So we are again in that position where you're finding all the men are making the decisions. They're in this kind of battle mode. And we don't feature. And unless we are there in positions of power, if we are not there on the table to make those decisions, there's going to be a problem because there is then that whole idea that the women are on the fringes of that restaurant hospitality hotel cafe and we are not at the center of decision making so I think the pandemic has been tough because everyone because of the economy and now especially is having to downsize having to have pay more you know be rational about how many people they hire you know a- any expansion has to be you know thought of through, and we are losing, we are losing everywhere.
0: do you think that there will be a change sooner than later, or do you think it's going to take a bit of time?
1: I think you know people like you and the kind of work you do uh, there are there are other women around who are interesting, who are powerful, who are vocal, who have platforms eventually, there is going to be an impact. We are all being part of that ripple of change and I hope that you and I will live to see and reap the harvest that we're sowing. We may not, but it's going to happen. A conversation between you and me, there's so much of these conversations happening around. You find women who are, you know, if, if people look at you and me just on the screen, we look very different, but we're not because we're on the same side. And we are on the right side of history, the two of us. This is what will make a difference, but... It's going to take time, and we have to be patient and not get aggressive and uh you know dragging people down and you know this kind of us and them. this is now yeah. how we, not how we win and I love the fact that you know, you've got some really exciting men on your you know on your podcast, and this is how it should be. give a voice to everybody you know be fair, open your spaces, let others learn from what you are doing. You have men and women on your thing you've got all kinds of people on your on your podcast. We should all be doing that. We should be opening out the spaces. I don't need any special privilege, nor do you, but we need to have a platform. We need to be included in the conversation. We don't need to be dropped out of all the email chains. You don't want to be that person who no one is talking to, whose idea is then picked up by another man on the table. And everyone says, oh, that's a great idea when you said it already. So it is these little things that need to change. We just need to be respected equally. No special privilege for us. You don't need to make, you know, treat us, you know, with these soft gloves as if we are sensitive and delicate. We are not. And I and you definitely are not. We can hold our own, but we need equality.
0: One day, and I think it's going to come sooner than we think. That's what I think. I'm remaining positive. So I always start my conversations with asking, what did you have for breakfast today?
1: I had a very fancy breakfast. A mm-hmm. friend of mine, he took me to uh, South Kensington, where I live. There's a new French, I can't pronounce the name, new French tea house, and all very posh. And I had a croissant uh, with cheese for £9.50. <laughs> and it was <laughs> worth it. I'm so ashamed to admit it. When I saw the price, I said, what is it going to be? Gold leaf inside? So good. It was so it so was good.
0: actually worth the nine pounds fifty. Okay, I'm going to yeah. have to go and see what this is all about.
1: <laughs> I mean, so I had a very fancy breakfast, and it was uh, yeah. And even the very small lemon tart was nine pound fifty. I'm watering. i watering. Luckily, I wasn't
0: paying. <laughs> good. That, that's why you had it. No, <laughs> yeah, so shocked at the price, even for South Ken. I mean, it's yeah. A, it's a
1: Great price.
0: Um, and you also, aside from all the madness that's going on, you also released a fabulous book this year called Amu. Can you tell us a bit about that? Because is Amu your mother's name or is that the word for mother? In... It's, it's the word for mother that is used in uh, South Asia,
1: India, Pakistan, Bangladesh. Uh, it's used for mother, but only in Indian Muslim families. Okay. It's a mix between Amma, which is more commonly used Mm -hmm. in in India by all kinds of people from different south and north, and Um, which is the Arabic word for mother. Because these were Muslims and there was a kind of influence of Arabic and Persian in their language, uh, Urdu is a mixture of, Urdu is the language you speak, which is a mixture of Hindi and Arabic and Persian. Uh, Um, so basically Ammu is used only by us. It's very rarely used in other families. It's a It's a term of, you know, it's not just like, it's like I've never heard anyone outside my own family calling their mother Ammu. But I I wanted to make that direct connection that this is about my mother. But what was very important, you know, when I started thinking about this book was I panicked. Uh, It was just when the pandemic hit, I lost my business. I was at home. And then all the deaths started happening, you know, friends, parents, uh, my own school friends, I lost three members of my family. This book was always in me. And I figured that if I don't write it now, I will never write it, it should never be a memoir. Mm-hmm. Because I want her in her lifetime to know what she did for me, because she never communicated. You know, I, I talk about this in the, in the book that, you know, she never like held my hand and said, I love you, or kissed me and hugged me and said, I'm so proud of you. She just fed me. But this was her language of love. But I was now going to put it down in words that I loved her, that I know she loved me, that I recognized the love. I also understood why she sat and watched me eat, that she would feed me. She never, she never asked me, how's your day? the moment she saw me coming back from school, she would ask me, you know, what do you want to eat? And this is a very strange thing. At that time, I never realized it was unusual till I moved to the West and I saw Western families where the parents were embracing their children and telling them they loved them. And I said, you know, this didn't happen to me, but did I feel loved? Yes. Why was I feeling loved? It was the food. She used mm-hmm. food as her language of love. And this is how this book idea came up. I was very lucky with my publisher, Iberi. You know, I had this, of course, you know, deep in lockdown, this call with, I think, so many people on it, the screen. I've had a call, a Zoom call with so many people, uh, entire, you know, from across the world, people were on it. And I started speaking, and it was very moving because everybody was in tears. Because I realized at that time, they were going through what, immigrants and migrants and refugees and all these people who leave home and cannot see family again. Everyone was in lockdown. So this was a, somehow a moment in all our lives when the world stopped and you didn't know when you could see your loved ones again. Borders had closed. People were dying. And it was, I think this is why this book, they said just right. I wrote with absolutely zero editorial control I think over 21 nights, I sat and wrote the text of this book. I knew in my head what was the recipes, how it was going to follow. And I just said, I want to do 10 decades, you know, I want to do, you know, a decade of my life each, five chapters. I'm 52 and I'm just going to write. And they said, go write. And except for all my typos, they didn't edit anything. So literally, it is a conversation I had. I used to re- work at night, of course, because my whole house was full husbands, kids, cat. It was like crazy. Uh, and I wrote at night and I used to watch, You know, I used to remember Ammu um, used to tell me this always, that never think your darkness will remain in your life. Wait and watch dawn and see the light piercing the dark and day will always follow night. And I waited for dawn. I wrote till dawn. I sat outside and I watched the dawn come in. And I felt Every time she will make it, I will make it. She will read this book. You see, in the way that I write, there is this deep emotion in there. It is driven by this, that whole idea that we are never going to be in perpetual darkness. Because, yes, all of our lives were stopped, you know, all the noise around us stopped. But as a restauranter, as someone who employed 35 people, for me that the world stopping was really serious. And I, and then of course the pandemic was everywhere and it hit India people were dying in my family. Uh, within 40 days, three people died, a father and two sons. I almost lost my nephew. So it was all a really difficult time. But this book is a book of optimism. It's about how you use food to pick yourself up from your bootstraps and you rise. And there are, you know, all these stories, many of them of joy and happiness, of victory, of resilience. And I hung on to that. I hung on to how food can heal you, how food can make you powerful, how you can actually heal someone else. It's the most intimate thing you can do, you know, where you cook with your hands and, you know, You and I can stand next to each other and cook the same dish, but your sensibilities, your touch, your instinct, even when you taste for seasoning, will be absolutely different from mine. And that is what makes it every dish you cook. And the most expensive ingredient you put in dish is your time. Mm. You can buy every ingredient back. That time you spent to cook is your gift to the person who's going to eat it and to yourself.
0: I feel very emotional <laughs> um there's so much I need to say I want to say um it's interesting you talk about your mum and you talk about your sort of your your life growing up with her which sort of brings me into your childhood um, so I guess I will start sort of there you know you were born and raised in Calcutta and kind of... Bringing it to what you were talking about, how she never really asked you those questions that are always asked in at the Western table. How was your day at school? How was your day at work? What happened? What, you know, this, that, and the other. Um, I want to know whether you feel like that's quite a cultural thing. You know, I come, my, my mother's side is Iranian and I married an Iranian man. And I do feel like for parts of the world it very much is like that where you don't talk about not necessarily talk about your feelings but those questions just aren't asked but you are shown love through food and so I guess like and so I seamlessly kind of want to ask you to answer that part of the question but also then talking about what was the food that your mum was cooking you know what were the dishes that remind you of your childhood
1: you're absolutely right it's a cultural thing In the East, uh, and you will find this, and of course, Iran, very much same, similar kind of culture. Uh, I have no idea why this exists, why there isn't this communication, but it's always about food. You know, nobody would go to your, your, you know, your mother's house and her ancestor's house. And leave without yeah, eating. totally. Yeah, and you know, so there's no question, you know. Yeah. You would always say, I'm not hungry. That doesn't exist in our culture. You know, you'll feed them till they're under the table, you know, <laughs> yeah. in a food coma. You know, you feed them to that that extent. But I, I think that it is so interesting that I, I realize I'm also not so good at communicating with my kids. This is why the last chapter is to them. That I have also not been able to tell them, and I use food, and you know, there's the biryani recipe where I talk about you know the, my mother making this for me every time you know I go into trouble in school. I often missed school, uh, I kind of jumped over the wall, when I did things I shouldn't be doing, and I didn't do so well in maths and science, and also not turning up for practicals. I hated going to the lab. Uh, I didn't like the smell of all the chemicals, but then, you know, that's part of the assessment. So obviously you'll fail because you haven't turned up for the exam. And she wouldn't say a lot to me. So it worked both ways. She didn't tell me she loved me, but then she didn't shout at me either. But then she would make that biryani and I knew I was forgiven. And this is so wonderful that, you know, she did have these things that she would, her signals to you that you're forgiven, that everything is fine. Her making of all the kebabs, you know, for Eid. There was a ritual to it, a rhythm to it. Uh, and these, you know, there are a lot of kebab recipes because to eat, as you, you know, I don't know if you, you know, in your mother's side of the family, but people come the whole day. So this whole idea that everything has to be hot and ready, you know, you kill yourself because you've got to have, you know, irrespective of who comes and how many people turn up, the food will be plentiful and ready. And these are these strange things about our culture that we manage somehow and even if you go to someone's house who's very very poor or who clearly doesn't have the means of ability you will leave feeling that you've been looked after hospitable you know this kind of they are so hospitable and food is that way that they do it so amu would make you know lots of these biryanis but also what i loved is that she would always make fish uh, because my father never ate fish used to be completely spooked by fish. He grew up, you know, landlocked in, in Yuppie where there's no nothing. And she would make these fish dishes that only she and I would eat. So my brother also never ate fish. Wow. And it was this thing that she would give me the pieces. And then I would notice that she would touch the fish to make sure that I got a piece that didn't have that much bones in it. And she used to select those pieces. And I saw her eating, but she had a, was watching me all the time that I never ate ended up getting a bone stuck in my throat. And I never did. So sitting far away from me, she would spot the bones and tell me, that's a bone, that's a bone. Yeah, I knew. And in some ways, I used to cruise through, you know, even very bony fish, knowing she was watching me
0: Mm.
1: and never realizing she's not eating. She's not eating. She's watching what I'm doing. And you don't notice these things as a child. While I was writing this book, I was thinking of all these little things that, she did out of love and I took it as my right. And I wanted her to know that I recognized the tag, that we went to shops because you know we were we were not very well off. Uh, I know you know we are impoverished aristocrats, you know. <laughs> maintaining our palace and you know houses costs so much money. It's just my father just owned a salary. And she would buy crayons for me and sit on the stool on the roadside and read the magazines, the film magazines she loved, including, you know, her hero. He might be on the cover, and she never bought it. And I never realized, till I started writing this book, aged 52, I realized that she left that shop always buying me something, but never that film magazine because she didn't have the money. It was very hard at times. I cried so much. I wept, and then I laughed. And I remember all these crazy things that used to happen. And then I almost felt her presence as I was recreating these dishes in lockdown, cooking them. I felt her presence next to me.
0: Mm.
1: And this is really, so I know that every author, you know, every writer writes from a place of pain. There is always that place of pain somewhere that you write. This book was written from a place of pain, but also a place of optimism that we would meet again, that I would gift her that book, that she would see that she meant so much. And the cover is this, you know, the Nokshikata. This is what pe- women like you and me are doing all the time. So basically two frayed pieces of cloth that are of no use anymore, stained and torn are stitched together by, you know, a, very, a running stitch, very basic stitch with little motives and emblems, not anything beautiful. In those little birds and flowers and mangoes and little things that they stitch women, they give life to that fabric. They give it strength. So through your podcast, me, through my work, this is what we do. This is what my mother taught me, that you hold the frayed, the weak, the ones that are not strong enough and you stitch and you give them strength. And I realized in that fabric that what I learned from her, I didn't realize till I started writing this book, how much I was like her, Mm -hmm. that I am an extension of what she was when she did her business and she was hiring women and, you know, breaking all kinds of barriers, taking all the servants. Even today, this is 1970s, even today in India, no one takes their servants into a fine dining restaurant and sits with them. They probably will be asked to leave by you know, the, the management. You don't sit with your servants. In the 1970s, she did that. And I always thought people were staring at us because we were using cutlery, because we normally eat with our hands. Yeah. Uh, and I thought they are impressed that there are all these children. They were staring at the servants. She was so unafraid. Anything I achieve is nothing compared to what she did. So brave, so powerful. Has she read it? Has she read the book? Yeah, she read the book and it was uh, very moving because when I I, I was able to get the book, to give it to her before her birthday, I eventually Mm. met her after two and a half years. My publishers managed to get a book copy to me, Mm. couriered in. And I gifted her to her. She did something so unusual. I'm going to say this without crying. She bowed down to me, which we don't do in our culture. And you'll understand this as, as an Iranian as well. That you know, bowing down to people is about hierarchy. It's about uh, it's about acknowledging that someone is more uh, powerful and above you. You know, and in and in Muslims, you know, we don't we don't acknowledge anything. You know, we don't. You know, we only bow down in prayer. We don't bow to anyone. And she bowed to me and said, you made me so proud. It was, oh, God, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe. It was so hard to take this vision of this proud, amazingly gifted woman accepting this book and bowing down. To me, it was really hard.
0: Sorry, I'm crying. No, well, I, I, I'm tearing up because I I think that not just culturally, but because of the story that I know about you, because I've followed your journey for such a long time, that this wasn't just about your mother being proud of you. I think it was also some sort of... Um, I'm not sure what the word is that I'm looking for, but as I mentioned in the introduction, you know, there's been so many obstacles that you've had to overcome. And that also includes what you spoke about actually on Chef's Table. And and I know that you're quite open in talking about this, about the culture of being a daughter, of the fact that you were a second daughter and how that's influenced your life and how you've had to essentially overcome that. and for people that might not know about that, explain that because I do think that her bowing down to you as well is a huge moment that kind of responds to that part of your life as well. Yes. You know, because the, you know,
1: in, mostly in all agrarian cultures, the family farm, the family home is inherited by the son. Girls are not given the farm. And so linked to the whole idea of inheritance comes this problem with girls. The girls are a burden in our culture because you not only have to protect their honor, you've got to get them married, you've got to give them dowry, all of this. You know, I mean, dowry doesn't happen in my culture because we don't have it in Muslims, but it was very, very complicated. And I think the one thing that Ammu, who could never tell me she loved me, has never admitted what it was for her to be the dark skinned middle daughter of five daughters. She refuses to talk about this. And under pressure from all, especially her own mother who made her feel she failed when she delivered me. My mother was very upset. She cried and I mentioned this in my chef's table interview and I hadn't told her I said it. She saw it for the first time on the screen. Mm. I didn't have the courage to tell her. She took it really well. She said, you're right, I cried. Then I write in the book about how she spent her entire life being just and fair between me and my brother, between my my beautiful fair skinned slim sister who looked like a princess and me, the dark skinned overweight person who would constantly be told, you know, who no one's going to marry you. You're such an embarrassment. You know, you're so fat and you're so dark. We'll never find a boy for you. My mother stood up to all of that. And, she was able to treat us all very fairly. And the great irony is, of course, you know, my world changed. So compared to my siblings, where I am today, she treats us all completely equally. Her treatment of me didn't change. When I became, you know, relatively famous, more people knew me. You know, in India, everybody knew who I was. Her attitude, was to, so it's remarkable. And yes, that bowing down to me was this acknowledgement mm-hmm. that what she had done was wrong. But she has asked me for forgiveness. And of course I forgive her. You can only talk about it if you forgive. You cannot speak about wounds that big, the scars that still stay, the scars that drive you to where you are every day. This is not the discrimination of my mother. It is a society that made me feel unwanted, unloved, and also uncelebrated. So it's a a very complex relationship where uh, she stood up for me. She, you know, really fought to make sure that I was allowed to do anything I wanted in the book. I mentioned, you know, there was a Bruce Springsteen concert and she told me, I I'll fly you down when girls in my family are not allowed to go down the road on their own. She was willing to fly me to another city to go and see a, a rock concert on my own. I mean, I didn't go, but I was like, wow, this is like, you know, this is not even boys are not allowed this in my family. And I saw everybody pass out in the room, but she meant it. She said, you know, she loves him. She go and listen to his concert. She should be allowed to go. And so it's, she stood up in this way. She, like I say, she shook the patriarchy very gently around her. (laughs) I I want to meet her. (laughs) She's remarkable. And, and, you know, what is so interesting is that she did it with such grace and dignity. You know, I remember her three in the morning coming back, sitting on an open truck, on an empty biryani pot, wearing her silks and diamonds. She'd gone to do catering in a party. She'd jump off the truck. Everyone, all the neighbors, was to watch because, of course, it was so loud when this turned up. And then all the dogs were running. I described this whole chaos. My mother would bring back bones for all the street dogs. So they're all fighting. And everyone's lights come on, and they're watching my mother. No one would come and say, this is disgraceful. How can a woman from this kind of family go out this is our culture, you know, it's in, you know, what is she doing so late at night in a truck full of, you know, male chefs? She's come back at night. You couldn't take my mother down because she, she radiated the power that didn't allow you, but she was so humble with of everything that she'd achieved in her humility. It made it hard to drag her down.
0: Mm.
1: It's a lesson I learned, I think, because I, I, now see my responses to a lot of things very similar to what my mother would do and you know literally i didn't realize how similar we were till i wrote And she was incredible she's just you know when she ran her business she she never even went to college she never she was not you know she just finished school and she was married off she was a grandmother at 32 wow. she was a mother at 18 and that's what her life was she built up an empire and my story is different i you know, I was educated. I did a PhD, but I understand how it's not the certificate of education; it's the humility you have and the understanding of justice that she taught me. That has me, that is my real education, not you know a degree.
0: I I feel exactly the same way. I mean, she sounds like the most remarkable woman that I've honestly ever heard of, and these are, this is why I love these conversations because. I always say that although you are you, your asthma, we know about you, we know about your food. It's the story behind you that is just so fascinating and I love it. And the, the 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 look when I look at your face when you talk about her, it's just it's just it's beautiful. I want to just fast forward a little bit. So you did mention that you got a PhD because you moved to Cambridge with your then uh new husband at the time. Uh, you then eventually get this PhD in British constitutional law. Um, I want to know what your first thoughts were of the UK when you came over. I mean, was it a bit of a culture shock? I thought UK was dire.
1: (laughs) I mean, the weather was so awful. And the first first college meal I went to, invited by the master, I thought everything had died many, many days ago. (laughs) The cabbage was boiled to bloody death <laughs> and everything tasted like they forgot the salt. Yeah. There was no salt in anything. It was so of course this is 30 years ago. Things have improved. Yeah, of course. And it definitely yeah. <laughs> Oxbridge college food has improved. But that time it was just so bad. You couldn't get anything. Now I remember the time when suddenly they had ginger in Sainsbury's. Of course, there was no uh you know WhatsApp or thing. There were Asian people standing outside Sainsbury's shouting at other Asian people saying, hey, they have fresh ginger. It was like, whoa. It was like excitement. You know, people were just walking around the the street, screaming at each other who they thought would be interested to know they're selling fresh ginger. And in there, there was a cardboard, you know, little piece written there, exotic vegetable, not even written ginger. I mean, that's the kind of Britain that I came to. It was just so shocking. And in Cambridge, if you're not a student and you're not an academic, no one was talks to you, because you don't count. Mm. So I was just like this isolated, abandoned person, uprooted from home. You know, now you can Skype your dog in Delhi. At that time, <laughs> there was no computer, yeah. there was no mobile phone. It was very hard to call home as well. I wrote letters, my father wrote letters, my mother never wrote. She's always write, love, Ammu, that's it. At edge, one edge of an airmail envelope, because I told my father, because that came faster than the ones when you put stamps and you had a letter inside. And my father would draw pictures of all the neighbors and what happened and how, how my dog was looking, of what he ate. They're incredible letters. My mother would just write one line. She never, she never wrote to me. Amu didn't write to me, and uh, it was just I found it really difficult. Space, and I remember thinking that you know this is what hell is in the Quran. Hell is described as fire and you know people being cooked in pots and whatever. So this, is, this was hell. Cambridge in winter, trees without leaves. i never seen trees without mm. leaves. And I felt, I was like this, stripped of everything beautiful, completely naked to the elements. There dried bark. And I ran my hand down the tree and that rough feel, I was that. I was this exposed, unprotected, unloved, uprooted person. I didn't think The trees would have a spring and I definitely didn't think spring would ever come to me Mm. it was not easy it was really harsh
0: I can really imagine I can imagine that and I I speak to a lot of people who have come over to the UK like even around the same time as you and I think that sort of the youth of today don't realize that like if you came over from somewhere from another country uh, literally you were relying on letters that yeah. was it. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and it, also,
1: n- nobody was talking about this. No. Now, you know, if you are you're a refugee, even, even if you're a refugee, I mean, I still think that the stories are not being told. But you see something in the media. You hear podcasts. You hear voices and songs and yeah. their books. At that time, no one wrote about us. Mm. You saw nothing. You watched put on television there was nobody who looked like you on TV. It was mm. crazy. Mm.
0: Fast-forwarding quite a bit now, you're you've done your PhD or you're doing your PhD. You start hosting supper clubs, um, and I guess were you starting to do that because you couldn't find the food that you wanted a- anywhere else? And I guess you know, I mean, I want to ask actually, sort of at this point, you'd learnt to cook. Were you as good as you are, say, now or how, were you still sort of learning it as you were going along?
1: No, I was, I was probably better than I am now because <laughs> I was I was cooking everything and I had no assistance. Okay. So I made everything. No, I, it's very strange because even though I didn't know how to cook when I came to this country and I was very, very, you know, devastated by not being able to eat good food. My husband was a terrible cook and then college food was like even worse Uh, It was, I cooked just like Ammu, the moment I started cooking. Because I spent so much time in the kitchen, Hmm. I was immersed in that cuisine. So I cook from here. I'm not looking at recipes. It's the aromas, the sound of the mustard seed popping, the sizzle of the curry leaves, the, you know, the, the smell of the meat as it's roasted on both sides. You know, how that rice fragrance with the saffron, that, you know, the biryani being opened, all of this was in my soul. It was in my DNA. And then when I decided I was going to cook it, so Amu would just verbally tell me, you do this and you do that. I was able to recreate everything because I already knew, but I'd never done it. So I didn't know how to cook. But then when I started cooking, I cooked without thinking. I cooked barefoot. I, I, I still find it difficult to wear shoes and cook. I, I cook, bare, yeah, yeah, it's a nightmare. I have to do, wear it for health and safety. It's a nightmare, I hate it. Mm. Uh, but in my own house, I'm, I cook barefoot. Uh, because in our culture, we don't wear outside shoes in the house. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you cook also without shoes. Mm. Uh, and uh, I just stand there and then the dish is made. I am listening to my mother. I'm listening, listening to her laughter, her instructions to the cook then make sure you don't do this and you make sure you don't do that. That is how I cooked in the beginning by just being transported back to where I was with her. And that's why she's such an important person in who I am today, because I used to be sitting next to her and listening to her, watching her, you know, and she used to make me taste things like, you know, is this seasoned enough or whatever, or, you know, the sweetness of a dessert because the sweetness changes, uh, should tell me, remember that, you know, when it cools, it'll change or that the texture will change. And it's these things that are invaluable because you're not looking this, you know, and I try to get that across in the book as well. I'm telling you how, to, how it's made, but I'm also telling you what to look out for. The changes in the color, the aromas, mm. the texture, you know, how you use the spoon to scrape the masala, uh, the oil coming to the edge when you are, you know, that's, it's, it's all these little things, it's the visual clues, it's the sound and the sense that of what you're cooking. Because that's how you should cook.
0: You yeah. should
1: cook with your entire senses because that is really when the dish is perfect. That makes you a powerful cook because you're using every strength you have of sight and sound and taste. And then that dish will always be remarkable.
0: And then it's also going back to what you said that if you and I were cooking side by side the same meal, they would taste different because our senses and our sensibilities are going to be different and that's okay because my dish will taste like how I've made it and how I like it and 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 likewise for you. And that's what I love about cooking as well. I mean, listen, I, 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 I'm i not trying to say that I don't like recipes. I I live by recipes and I need recipes, but I also love cooking from a recipe. But, and again, I think this must be like a, a thing in the West. I know a lot of people who don't do this. People don't taste as they go along. I don't understand this. I don't understand that. I mean, I this is just crazy. <laughs>
1: And I, I'm just so shocked when I when I see these people, I have not understood. And of course, if it's about hygiene, don't double dip. Use exactly. Of, and you have most of like you have a dishwasher, use ten teaspoons, but for God's sake, taste it. And yeah. it is so important. Especially I know this with Iranian food as well. And you know, and and you need to add seasoning oh my at the right time as yes. it goes and it develops, it changes. And spices take on different you know, strength, Literally. you know, as the oils are released into the dishes, clove oil, you know, people rub it on their rums. You have a tooth. It's got oil in it. So much, you know, cassia bark, cinnamon, these are all, they are not static. They're dynamic. Mm. They're mm. changing over time. You've got to taste the thing. How will you know what's happening? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Actually, you're right. No one else has raised this before. You're so right. I don't understand people who don't taste. It. I know.
0: I just, but then I'm just like, so how do you know what you're actually making? what so you're just gonna finish the finish like follow the recipe and then just eat it at the end but then i don't know whatever I don't know anyway so sort of like summarizing you know the supper clubs then eventually move um you're you're hosting with Vivek Singh who was a previous guest of mine who I who actually spoke about you when we sat down and did our recording and he speaks very fondly of you um but I spoke even more fondly of you so there we go um and you eventually uh start owning bricks and mortar and you open up Darjeeling Express in Soho and I guess what I want to know at this point is you open up this restaurant. It was quite a small restaurant. Um, it was a nightmare to get a reservation, may I say. And what was so wonderful about this place, and I know we've kind of touched on it, but you create this all-female kitchen. And what I want to know is why was that so important? I know we're talking about you know women in the culinary... And and the food space, but why was it so important for you to have women in that kitchen and women who necessarily who, sorry who weren't necessarily, you know, formally trained? What 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 was what was the ethos behind that? I think it
1: was really this desire to celebrate the uncelebrated. Just like I was never celebrated. But I felt I had so much to give. These women are remarkable because many of them never ate meat or have cooked meat. They came from very deprived, some from very abused backgrounds. For them, food was never something that they saw as a way out of poverty or their difficult situations. But when we got together and we started cooking, they told me that they felt powerful. They felt liberated. They felt that they could be something else. They didn't have to conform to what they had. They thought this was going to be their life. And what is incredible is that if you look at our culture in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, it's a woman in every household who's cooking or in charge of cooking. Our food is very futile. We don't have a loaf of bread that we bring to the table. We have individual chapatis and rotis being made. Who is making it? In our culture, women eat last, girls eat least. The men are served always. If you go into any family, you will find the men get the choicest of pieces of meat, the choicest of dishes. Someone is cooking in the kitchen, who's a woman behind the walls. For these women, I wanted them to be visible. I wanted this to be celebrated because if it's only women in every home, in every restaurant that is at mid-level of fine dining, it's a man cooking. Okay. In the East or in the West. And I have no problem with that. But if you look at all their CVs, they all learned to cook in culinary school as a profession. And they all were trained in five-star hotels on how to maximize you know, this batch cooking, mass cooking, production line cooking. In a hot country, home cooks do not cook like this. Most of us had fridges, but we didn't have power. It didn't matter that you know my family was wealthy enough. We had a fridge, but there was no way that you know, we'd have electricity for eight hours at that time when I was growing up in Calcutta, there were massive power cuts. So we are not used to that. So this was really a celebration of the real true heart of our cuisine, which is cooked fresh, but there's a lot of kind of emotion involved in cooking. Women got together and cooked. This is also part of what our tradition is. Women got together and cooked together. No one was screaming at each other. There was no hierarchy. There was no hierarchy. Everyone blended into each role. And there was non-verbal communication. People looked at their eyes and figured out what was happening. I cooked with a team of women who cooked like me. Yes, I came from a different family from theirs. But whether you're poor or you're rich, whether you're Muslim or you're Hindu, it did not matter which culture and caste you came from or the region you came from. There is an eternal rhythm to our food. You know, this is the same for Iranian food as well. Mm. It doesn't matter if someone is making something very expensive and elaborate or making something simple. There's a beat there's a rhythm, There's a the heartbeat of our food is the same. It doesn't matter what you're making. And so this is the thing, that this is why I wanted these women to be visible and I opened the kitchen to celebrate the feminine energy. In all our cultures, it is women who are custodians of family recipes. Women are the healers and the feeders. You know, men are the way playing with fire and doing barbecues. You'll find men cooking on, big occasions, you know, where they will come out and and make this barbecue. Even now, I'm sure in so many British households, you know, the men are of the barbecue, they're burning the bloody meat. But, you know, (laughs) everyday food, the drudgery of everyday domestic cooking falls on women. And this is a double-edged sword because it can be also the chains that tie us, the idea that you have to cook every day. I wanted to flip that on the head and become what breaks our chains and sets these women free. This was about power and politics. Food was going to become our battle cry for justice. And I was not going to make this into a business and not talk about my, you know, myself. It was always about the team. And this is why I showed the team as well in Netflix because when I told my producer that I wanted to show my team, this is a very short episode. Not a single chef had asked to show their team before that on Chef's Table. If you look back at all the episodes, they show their partner they show their investor do they show their team i said you're not gonna, you're going to show my team you're going to name them and you're going to name that village so next time girls are born in that village second daughters they will think wow we saw her you know she's a second daughter she brought honor to the family in our in our eastern tradition honor is a complicated word it's a complicated word Girls don't bring honor, our honor has to be protected. No, I don't want men to protect my honor. Do not question my honor. My honor is being free. And once you're out of a cage, I'm not going back into that cage. And I realized when I was speaking with these women, when they were cooking in my house, when we were doing the home supper clubs, I could not enjoy my freedom if I didn't set them free. My freedom would mean nothing if I knew they were in chains. I had to set them free. And I knew the only one way of doing that, which was to cook. And this is why I have an all-female
0: kitchen. I just got shivers down my spine. Um, I just think you're amazing. (laughs) I do. I really do. And I have to say, I mean, I'm celebrating you, Asma. So I just want to let you know that I'm I'm chief of the fan club, (laughs) Um, we're going to start it from now on. I am the Asma Khan fan club. But I I, I want to you, you mentioned Chef's Table. And that might be where a lot of people sort of started hearing about you and following your journey from there. And I guess, you know, that is, I have to say, you know, I, I possibly wouldn't be sitting here now, had it not been also for Chef's Table, because although I, my, my story goes way back, and it's not about me, but I found Chef's Table and still do such an incredible show because they do shine the light, not on your sort of celebrity chefs and your very well known personalities, but they, it's about the people with a story. And what's so wonderful is that just like what you did, I think that you've used, you know, they obviously have approached you, but the fact that you were adamant that you wanted to show those women, that's so important and that's part of your story. And watching that particular episode totally resonated with me because, one, you were, I, am I correct in thinking, you were the first British chef?
1: Yeah, I still on, am. The only. And, and,
0: st- and you still are the only British chef on that show. Now, that show is global. That's not just on Netflix in the UK or in America. It's everywhere. And isn't that so interesting that... For someone who was standing up and, and is talking about these kinds of things, not only were you the first British and the only British chef that they've actually shown, but you were female as well. And for me, that just kind of says it all.
1: And I think that, it was
0: great. and that they, And it's
1: incredible. When they approached me, I was so shocked. But you know what I had expected? That when they made the announcement, I would be trolled by people saying, oh, she's not very British. And also Indians, you know, the kind of backlash of right-wing Indians that, you know, she's also not Indian because she's Muslim. All of this kind of thing. Not one. I didn't get trolled at all. This is remarkable. I still haven't understood why. Which, you know, I, I see so many women of color, you know, women in the food industry being trolled, being body shamed by being hassled. I don't get any of that. Not one. So they, you know, it it was life-changing, of course, to feature on Chef's Table. And what is remarkable is, you know, people from Brazil, from Malaysia, from the Middle East, from all around the world, writing to me saying that in me they saw themselves. So it is so exciting to know that your story is something that people can see themselves in, that there's a universal truth in how the marginalized the ones that are uncelebrated, can fight back. And I'm so glad that, you know, there are people who write to me later on. You know, I speak to them over the years and they've written about how they've changed their lives and done interesting things and liberated themselves. You know, I suppose the inspiration has been watching this on, you know, on screen, Chef's Table. And I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful that I could be the storyteller, of everybody else's story too. This is not beyond my own story. This is everyone's story. And you see someone rising from the ashes and you know that you can do it too.
0: And, and, and I think you're absolutely right. And, and even just as the viewer, when I watched it, you know, at that point when it came out, I don't even think I'd started Crazy Sexy Food, but I do remember there were elements of it that even I was like, oh my gosh, that's me. I, I I so get what she's saying. And it may not have even got anything to do with the food. It could have been the cultural conversation. It could have been the conversation amongst women, whatever, whatever acceptance, loving yourself, not loving yourself, whatever it is. And and I think that was what I got from it. That was so powerful. And, um, and still remains, I'd say probably one of my favorite episodes of, of all of it. And, and I'm such a huge chef's tables fan what is the future? I know we sort of touched on it, but what is the future for women in food?
1: I think the future is bright. I think that, you know, women have the right to a space on the stage. We absolutely deserve it. We are, deserve it not as an allowance to the fact that we're women. Women have always cooked. Women are very powerful. And we are always, we should be acknowledged for the, the contribution we have made, not our generation, for generations. Women in their graves never got acknowledged as skilled because they were just cooks. You know, in my own family, you know, my grandmother didn't read and write. She's a great cook. But it is just important that change will happen. And we need to make sure that change is diverse and inclusive, that those that speak better, that look better, that have more connections, do not Keep those women out who are less verbal, who are coming from a place of you know deprivation or insecurity, or and that is a very important for me. So for me, of course, because of the color of my skin and who I am, I I see a great future for women. I am concerned if that future is not diverse, and I hope that women will recognize in their own battle to be where they are, that they take everyone with them, that they take the voiceless, the weak, the uncertain, the insecure. The power, sh- the powerful, should lift up those that at that point are weak. Because I can tell you one thing: in my kitchen today, these women completely do not listen to anything I say. They are—they are so bad, you know. And I just like, you know, I come and say, let's have tea. And we're like, this is not tea time. <laughs> Go away. And like, you know, <laughs> what happened to all these women who were like, oh, we're not so sure. Yeah, you know, and so powerful, so powerful, so strong. And, but I, I I still, you know, I get excited when I see some female, I read about some females opening a restaurant or whatever. It really makes me happy because I think, mm. yeah, you know, mm. change is happening, change is happening and change will continue. And I think that, you know, I hope I live to see this in my lifetime
0: I think you will slightly changing trajectory a little bit I want to know what your relationship with food is like
1: my relationship with food is I think it's about it's very linked to childhood and memories I think I still use food as a way of feeling connected to my homeland. So, I mean, my horrible kids during lockdown, I swear two kids, two boys cooking for them. I'd much rather have fed 200 people in my restaurant. So unhappy, so critical, so unimpressed with everything I was cooking. They forced me. I told them to get it from Marks and Spencer's to go and get lasagna. They said, "Can you make lasagna?" I was like, "Yeah, just go and buy it." They said, "No, you make it." Oh God! It took me two days to clean my kitchen, and I had to look at YouTube tutorials. And because it's not food that I'm, you know, I,
0: I've, I've yeah. yeah, I don't know
1: how to make it. And they made me make it. I was so angry with them. And I realized, you know, at that time, they told me, "Oh, you're so boring. You only eat the food that you know you grew up eating." And I was like, "Oh, yes." I hadn't realised then. (laughs) So I like to try new cuisines and all, but when I cook, I only cook my family food. Mm -hmm. And that probably is very boring. I'm 52, I've been living in the West for like 30 years. So my relationship with my food is about identity. And so tell me what some of your specialities are at home. I cook a lot of paratha with different Mm -hmm. kind of stuffing and uh, my kids put all kinds of rubbish on it and eat it. mite and... (laughs) Honey and peanut butter. Oh, wow. I, 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 you know, nice. Well <laughs> weird, I have to say. Honey, lots of honey. They're just crazy kids. But I I I also make a lot of things that are very distinctively Calcutta, Indo Chinese. Yeah. There are two Indo Chinese recipes in Ammo, But I cook a lot of Indo Chinese food. So I'm quite fascinated by this blend of Chinese and Indian food. And yeah, so I I the Indo Chinese food is good because I have one child, my younger one do not like Indian food. I don't think he doesn't like me very much as well. So he's very embarrassed. He told me, you can't come to parent-teacher's meeting because my teacher told me she saw you on chef's table. I'm so embarrassed. All my friends have seen you on chef's table. Please do not come to my school.
0: How old is he? Well, yes,
1: that's the thing. He's 17 now but
0: yeah okay he's just at that age he's just
1: deeply ashamed of, of who yeah I am. yeah
0: he'll and get he'll suddenly realize he's actually got the coolest mom ever. yeah I mean he will
1: get there but I've seen the older one go through that transformation right you know oh, when yeah. I went to his first when he first went to college he told me please don't come because and then I, <laughs> yeah. by his third year he told me all my friends want to meet you please can you give them cookbooks you know and then they all come to the restaurant he's very proud of me and he works with me now my my older oh, son yeah amazing. He's, yeah he started working with me but it's uh yeah, so it's it's, a, it's really weird, this kind of uh, going through this journey with, you know, my kids.
0: Mm. Uh, I'm when... not sure
1: that they will actually completely get it till they're a little older. But very I much, think you know, it's I think it happens to all of us.
0: And also they, I think that it will come with age with them, but also they've had such a different upbringing yeah. to you. Yeah. Like you can talk about it, but they haven't lived it. Yeah. And, it, you know, it's kind of like the conversations I have with my mum, you know, her life story is so complex compared to what really was quite a cushioned life that I grew up in, in London, yeah. with not many complexities. And I think that you can talk about it with your children, but as a lived experience, it's always going to be different. I think it takes time. And actually, it wasn't until I got into my 30s that I fully understood my mum. So I think it's all of
1: us are like this. Yeah. You don't get it. It
0: really was. For me, it was like maturity and being like, oh my gosh. I so get it now. Yeah. I so get it. When you do find yourself out and about, aside from obviously yours, um, where are some of your favourite places to eat? Uh I do not go to any Indian place. Okay. (laughs) that doesn't surprise me. I
1: I love I love going to Chinatown. And I go my favorite place is, is a restaurant called Canton. Uh, okay, it's, uh, I, someone's told me about this place. Yeah, it's very nice. It's very nice okay. and it's Cantonese food. I love it, I love it. So I love going to Chinatown, but I also, I love uh, baked potatoes. So where I find baked potatoes. I love salt beef bagel uh, in Brick Lane. And uh, I also have, a, I, I
0: love uh, I love pies. I love pies. <sighs> I have to just go back to the bagel. So aside from being Iranian, my father is also Jewish. So he was raised in Hackney when Hackney was not cool like it is now. So I love the fact that you love a salt beef bagel because I love a salt beef bagel.
1: And I, I because in India, I'd never, didn't know this. No, The first time I had salt beef bagel, I thought, this is heaven. It's you- the best thing I've eaten in my whole life. And it's been 30 years. And I still love it equally. And I've been told that, you know, oh, you've got to go to New York and you've got to go to all these
0: Jewish uh, uh, delis and have it. And the only reason I'm going, I'm excited. The Bagel Bake on Brick Lane is still forever going to be number one. And I actually know them quite well because I did a I did a show with them and it's they're still the best. Asma, can you and I go and have salt beef bagels together on Brick Lane? Yeah, we should. We should. <laughs>
1: and maybe because you know them and you think that I might get... Some extra, extra, extra Absolutely. bits. Absolutely. Yeah. I'll hook you yeah, up. Yeah, don't yeah. worry. Just make worry. sure that, they, they, that, you are, that you tell them that I'm your friend and that they Absolutely. should be kind of big chunks of meat in there. Yeah, 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 yeah no, definitely. Yeah, you'll, be, you'll get extra. Yeah, yeah, you'll make sure that, you know, I'm in their good books. So I, I get course. more.
0: <laughs> I always finish my conversations with a few quick fire questions. Yeah. So what is the craziest food you've ever eaten?
1: Uh, I think it's fried grasshoppers.
0: Oh, where was that? In,
1: in northeast of India. They eat insects okay. there, yeah.
0: What do you think of them? Not, not nice.
1: <laughs> not to be repeated.
0: No, not to be repeated. Yeah, yeah. Okay. What has been your most memorable meal?
1: I think the, the meal I actually write about in my book, which is the meal I ate, my last meal, as a, just before I got married. I've yeah. never forgotten that. I've never forgotten that. Maybe it was the fact that Amu fed me with her hands. Um, I I think that that
0: is my most memorable week. Wow. Okay. That's, that's quite, that's beautiful. The most important question I'm going to ask you all day. My favorite snack is a packet of crisps. What is your favorite flavor of crisps and why? (laughs) I love salt and vinegar.
1: Yay. (laughs) And, And what I love is that it burns your lips. Yeah, I I love that sensation.
0: But are you liking something thin, like a Walkers, or are you liking something thicker, like a kettle chip?
1: Oh God, I I like both. I love I love both. I love kettle chips, but I think I would go for Walkers.
0: Okay, I, I
1: I like the fact that it's so crisp and thin.
0: Yes. Yep. Yeah. Okay, I accept that answer. What food sums up happiness for you?
1: Paratha. I'll. Good that's answer. still my favourite. With yeah. ghee and, you know, just yeah. crisp and,
0: oh, for me, paratha, yeah. always. Final question. Live to eat or eat to live?
1: I know Why? what I should say. Uh, I think I eat to live. Do you? Yes. Why? Not sure. But that's that's what I thought when you asked me the question.
0: Okay, but see, this is why I love this question because it's, it's, it's quite philosophical. So people take it in different ways. Um, I thought you were gonna say live to eat. Okay.
1: It's, if you'd asked me whether it was about cooking, my answer might have been different.
0: Okay. Even
1: though I food is an important part, it's the feeding someone else which is for me deeply emotional. My whole life, I see my role is to serve, not to eat.
0: Honestly, Asma, this has been probably one of the most pivotal moments in my short career as a podcaster. (laughs) I want to thank you so much for your time. And I want to say that I am celebrating you and i hope that you feel celebrated after this beautiful conversation and i cannot wait to eat salt beef bagels with you on brick lane thank
1: you and you are so wonderful thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to be on your podcast
0: thank you you're amazing thank you so much Thank you for tuning in. If you love what you hear, please subscribe and review. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at crazysexyfood and check out the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel. Until next time, bye.